0: Welcome to the Florida Roundup. Thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. And a big welcome to my new co-host, Danny Rivero. Hey, Danny.
1: Hey, Melissa. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. I'm Danny Rivero in Miami. And to get into it, after outrage from angry parents this week, the Florida High School Athletic Association removed some controversial questions from physical evaluation forms for student-athletes. The new form has removed questions about athletes' menstrual histories, but staff of the association appear to have quietly changed the field on the form to ask students, student athletes for their sex assigned at birth.
0: Now that's right. Now, Florida's previous form asked athletes for their sex and included five optional questions about their menstrual history. The entire medical history form had to be turned in to schools. But parents, students, and physicians loudly called for the FHSAA to remove the questions, this following an investigation by the Palm Beach
1: Post into the question's origin and where the answers were stored. But a recommendation from the FHSAA's Sports Medicine Committee in January suggested that the association make the menstrual questions mandatory and require athletes to turn in answers when they register to play. So we begin the a- the hour right there on the on the Florida Roundup with a closer look at this. You can give us a call statewide at 305-995-1800, or you can also tweet us at Florida Roundup.
0: Your calls and tweets ahead, but first we welcome Catherine Cokel, education reporter with the Palm Beach Post. Hey, Catherine.
2: Hey there. So thanks so much for having Good me. Good to have you. And Jen
0: Meal- pogey founder of a campaign against these questions called privacy period hi jen
3: hi thank you for having me i appreciate it
0: good to have you both Catherine. let's begin with you your investigation in the palm beach post sparked widespread outrage and it appears to have led to the big change this week how did you get started looking into this
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I I do want to say, after about the hundredth time you say FHSAA, it starts to roll (laughs) off the tongue. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Don't worry. It's going to get better. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, I started looking into this in August um, when parents of student athletes in Palm Beach County reached out to me. They were filling out online registration forms for their athletes for the first time. Previously, parents across the state had done this on paper forms um and parents specifically a parent of an athlete who did not get a period reached out to me and said hey i would be uncomfortable filling out these questions if my if my child had a period they don't but you know can you look into this where did these come from and that really kind of sparked this whole process and so I started looking into the online platform that Palm Beach County athletes were using. I learned that the FHSAA has been um, writing and distributing these forms across the state uh, for decades and that these questions had been on this form for 20 years, uh, at least 20 years, I reviewed forms back to 2002. So um, that kind of is what got, got the ball rolling on this and, and it's it's led to here.
0: So if the questions had always been on the forms and they were optional, What is it about the climate that we're in right now that made this such a flashpoint of controversy and sparked such outrage from parents and doctors and teachers and athletic coaches even?
2: I mean, the thing that really stood out to me when I was interviewing physicians and parents and students about this is that we're just in a different world now. Uh, Following the Dobbs versus Jackson women's health decision that overturned Roe v. Wade last June, a lot of people told me they're rethinking how they value their privacy when it comes to their reproductive history. So physicians who have been talking, you know, always talk to young people about these things and who have always filled out these forms are kind of taking a second look at them and saying, I really don't know that this information needs to be anywhere but in my office where it's protected by HIPAA. Um, And it is important to note that these forms, whether they are collected on paper or digitally by schools, are subject to subpoena.
0: I see. Now, The vote to uh, keep these questions off the form was 14 to 2. What did the two holdouts say was their reasoning for wanting these questions about athletes' periods to stay on the form and to to be mandatory?
2: Well, the special meeting was coming on the heels of a recommendation by the FHSA's Sports Medicine Committee. That's a group of physicians. Um, They had actually recommended making these questions mandatory for athletes to both fill out and turn into their schools. So that was the recommendation that was set to come to the board. And then the executive director of the FHSAA uh, kind of rewrote that recommendation to say we'd like to take the questions fully off. Um, And so the two people who voted against taking these questions off leaned on two big things. One, that the more information that schools and specifically athletic trainers have about their students and their um athletes the better that they can serve them in an emergency medical situation and two uh one of the members chris Patrika, mentioned that she felt that it was important to destigmatize things like menstruation and periods in schools and that taking these questions off the form further stigmatizes that she also made the argument that not asking questions about a very normal um uh bodily function actually discriminates against female athletes so she was one of the votes against keeping um or against removing these questions from the form and that was that was her reasoning
0: now your reporting is excellent and got the word out to the public about this you had to drive all across the state though to attend the meeting it wasn't live streamed is that a sunshine law violation in florida
2: I did. I took quite the road trip up to Gainesville. I'm based in West Palm Beach. Um, the board of directors of the FHSAA was meeting virtually during COVID, but they're back to meeting in person uh, now. And when I asked how to attend the board meeting, you know, the FHSAA sent me the address and I talked to my editors about it. I'm I'm really grateful that the Palm Beach Post, uh, you know, values this type of local reporting. But as far as I know, that's not actually a violation of the Sunshine Law, because the Sunshine Law says that public meetings need to be declared oh. public meetings and open to the public at all times. And once I got to this meeting in person, uh, I was led in with no questions asked. Uh, I was asked to introduce myself in front of the whole meeting um because I was one of the very few people who didn't work for the FHSAA or was on the board that was there. But um, as far as I know, you know, that meeting was open to the public. It was just four hours away from where I was.
1: I'll, I'll jump in here. Um, that's a good reason and a reminder to support local news organizations to, to fund reporters driving across the state to attend these really public meetings. Um, m- moving on, I want to bring Jen Meal Pogi into the conversation here. Um, Jen, thanks for coming on. You started the privacy period campaign in response to this almost becoming mandatory, these questions about menstrual cycles and periods. Um, What is that campaign and what brought you to launch it?
3: Yeah, so great question. And I'd like to thank Catherine for her reporting, because I think this shows how civil engagement should work and works best. I read about this at the news and I was outraged. I'm the mother of three daughters, one of whom is 16 and plays high school varsity soccer. And when I read that the questions would be mandatory related to menstrual cycles, I felt very strongly that that violates all girls' privacy. It should not be required to be mandatory. I was so outraged that I launched Privacy Period on Tuesday and within three days, it got more than 600 signatures on that petition. And I also launched a PR battle to raise awareness and encouraged others to join me in this opposition.
1: And as as Catherine just mentioned, concerns about data privacy and how they can be used by the government or anyone else to, to track people in a post-Roe v. Wade world have definitely increased since that Supreme Court case last year came down. Um, do you think this would have gotten as much attention? Would you, do you think paid as much attention to this if Roe v. Wade was not overturned last year?
3: So I can tell you that as a woman and as the mother of three daughters, regardless of that decision, I would have felt the same about this invasion of privacy. I feel it's really important not only to protect young girls and women, but everyone uh, when you feel like there's an injustice and that your privacy is going to be violated to enforce boundaries to keep governmental agencies, schools, to keep people in their lanes. Let athletic departments focus on sports, let physicians focus on health. And I think it was frankly a ridiculous proposal that those questions would be mandatory. And to Catherine's point, that they would then end up in the hands of schools. Schools don't need that information.
1: And, Jen, I want to ask you, in in a time when Republicans have a super majority in both houses of the Florida legislature, um, a a governor who's exercised his his power very um, strongly across the board, it's not very often that anything associated with state policy gets reversed. This association is not technically a state agency, but it is empowered to do certain things by the state government. Um, So, I mean, I want to ask you, like, do you take this as a victory for the opposition in Florida? I mean, we haven't seen many of those in, in, the, in recent 100%, history.
3: 100%, I view this as a huge victory because I think what happened was FHSAA was so pressured in both the media with elevating this issue and by outraged parents, citizens, people who thought that this was an entire overstep, um, an invasion of privacy, for them to then take off those questions i think is a huge victory and i would agree with you that you don't often see that response and again that's why i emphasize that i really feel like this particular issue best demonstrates how civil engagement should work and that you can influence the des- decision makers
1: and we we have a call here i want to go to martha calling from o- ozona um martha Thank you for calling. You're on the Florida Roundup.
4: Hi, nice to hear from all of you people today.
1: Absolutely. Um,
4: uh, my, my take on this is first of all, my perspective is I'm a former professional athlete. I am a high school and college coach for many years. And this private information is in no way needed for women to perform as athletes or girls. I've been through it all for years and years, worked with thousands of people. Um, Part of me wonders if this is a way to sneakily scan for transgenders. Um, I'm not saying it is, but it runs through my mind. I also think this is extremely private information that is not needed in any way. We are not asking boys if their testes have dropped, if they're ejaculating on a regular basis, and how often. You know, we're not asking boys these questions that could be tied to health. You know, we're just doing it to girls, so it makes me think it's very belittling and very misogynistic. And I agree, women's bodies and women's processes and functions need to be dis- demystified. But I really don't think we should do it on the backs of children and and their privacy. Um, well,
1: well th- th- you know, th- th- thank those, you. Those s- are my points. Thank, thank you so much, Martha. We we really appreciate it. Um, Catherine, I, w- I want to bring you back into this conversation because the questions about menstrual cycles were removed from this form. But another question asking what sex someone was assigned at birth was actually added to this form. And that brings up something that Martha just mentioned about transgender athletes and laws that were passed over the last two years regulating that in Florida um, is was putting that on the form in response to the to those laws that were passed or how how does it how does it fig- figure into that bigger conversation?
2: Yes, Martha brings up a really interesting point. And that's actually that was a huge part of my reporting when I first started looking into this. Um, prior to yesterday, uh, I spoke with an endocrinologist in Gainesville who I asked straight up Are questions about menstrual history a way to. Identify or out transgender athletes and he told me no and the reasoning for that was that if a trans male athlete who does menstruate um, Has the opportunity not to fill out this form. They probably won't they probably wouldn't have answered these questions when they were optional Same for a trans female athlete who does not menstruate uh, She would just not fill out the answers to these questions when they were optional uh, that was prior to yesterday when those questions were taken off, and now the sex assigned at birth is placed on the form. And to be clear, athletes are going to be required to list their sex assigned at birth both in their private medical history that will not go to their schools and in the physician clearance form that will go to their schools. And that is in response, according to the FHSA staff member who uh, corresponded with me on this, that is in response to the Fairness in Women's Sports Act, which is a 2021 law that was passed um, that requires all athletic teams in Florida to be divided based on biological sex, that's the the language that's in the state statute, as either male teams, female teams, or co-ed teams. And so it is worth noting that for the last 20 years, um, an athlete was only asked to report their sex on these forms. And so this change to sex at signed at birth was to comply with the new law, but also done very quietly. I mean, there was no explanation of this. There was no addressing of this change by the executive director or FHSAA staff. And so um, the reporting that I've done in the last 24 hours has has really put a finer point that this is in response to the Fairness in Women's Sports
0: Act. To that act. Susan tweets the show. Privacy is a big deal. Did I hear correctly? These forms wouldn't fall under HIPAA. Trans is an adjective like black or tall or thin. It's a fact that some girls are mislabeled as boys at birth, tweets Susan to the show. 305-995-1800, Carlos in Hylia Gardens. Go ahead, Carlos.
4: Hi, yes. Um, I just have a a brief comment. I'm a coach here at a high school in Hylia Gardens. And as a coach, as my role as a coach, I just don't see... The importance or the need for me to have access to that form, um, or even my athletic director, um, I understand if it's like going to jeopardize the student menstrual cycle, and sorry, in terms of health, in terms of their menstrual cycle. Uh, but I feel like that should just stay at the conversation in mm-hmm. the doctor's office between gyno or, or the doctor. But I just don't need. Then I can imagine me telling a parent why their daughter isn't playing because. Yeah. You know, they may be on the menstrual cycle, and 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 that just—I feel like that opens a can of worms that I don't think is my business.
0: Well, thanks, as a coach, for for sharing your perspective, Jen Pogey. Almost out of time, but you know, on Thursday, Congress introduced a bill that would actually block federal funding for any school district that makes these kinds of questions about menstruation required. What does that tell you?
3: Well, I think it shows that they're listening. And I think it shows that through very aggressive civil engagement, you can affect change. And as I said all along this past week leading up to the meeting, this shouldn't just happen in Florida that we block that very private information from being disclosed to athletic departments and protecting our children. This should happen nationally. No young girl should have to have her privacy violated. So that's exactly what I think. And I think it's the right move. And
0: Catherine, I think uh, we need to uh, once again reiterate: it was your reporting in the Palm Beach Post that has now caused this issue to reverberate across the country and into the halls of Congress. What are what are your thoughts about how this has really grown over the last week?
2: It's really remarkable to see this national conversation started as a as a result of my reporting. As journalists, it's so fulfilling to see. People's lives and and minds informed by what we do, and um, it's just a, another good example of why local reporting is where it's at. So I, I certainly appreciate it, and I, I will continue following this.
0: Sure, and I, I can only imagine how many parents and coaches and athletes you've heard from since publishing. I'm sure it's been quite quite a earful.
2: Oh, so many, so many throughout the last seven months, um, and and it's been really really great to see this conversation growing. Well, it's a fascinating
0: story, and I want to thank both of you for joining us. You can read more of Catherine's reporting on this. Uh, she is Catherine Kokel, education reporter with the Palm Beach Post, and Jen Milpogi, Tallahassee-based founder of a campaign that sprung up very quickly in response to this called Privacy Period, with an exclamation point, and I want to thank you both.
2: Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much.
0: In a moment, a special session in Tallahassee will tell you why that's next here on the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio
1: Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. I'm Danny Rivero in Miami
0: and I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. Well Florida lawmakers are in Tallahassee for yet another special session. It kicked off this week to tackle a number of issues.
1: And this comes just weeks before lawmakers were scheduled to assemble for the state's regular 60-day annual legislative session in March.
0: So a number of items are on the docket for this two-week session, including a measure to expand the state's controversial migrant flight program and another that would remove Disney's independent special district status. Two legislative priorities for Governor Ron DeSantis. We're going to talk about the status of these bills and others expected to come up, and we want to hear from you. We are live statewide here on the Florida Roundup. Join the conversation right now. Give us a call, 305-995-1800, as we talk about migrant flights and Disney's status in the Sunshine State, 305-995-1800, or tweet us at Florida Roundup.
1: For more on the session, the special session, I should say, we welcome Steve Bosquet, the opinion editor and columnist with the South Florida Sun Sentinel. And we also welcome Jeff Brandis. He's a former Republican state senator in in Florida. Uh, Steve, Senator Brandis, thank you both for coming on. Yes, thank you. So, Steve, let's start with you. Um, This special session came about really quickly. It was announced, and then immediately it was like poof, here we are. Um, what was so pressing that's happening right now that lawmakers couldn't wait a few weeks until the regular session starts next month?
5: The purpose of this session is just to provide <clears throat> political cover for Ron DeSantis to do stuff he was only going to do anyway. Uh, there's no need for the special session. This is a, this is an abomination what they're doing in Tallahassee, in my opinion. <clears throat> there's no there's nothing here that couldn't have waited a few more weeks. There wasn't a copy of the Disney or Reedy Creek bill until a day or two before the session. Uh, anytime there's a special session, uh, Senator Brandis can speak to this better than me. Anytime there's a special session, everything is truncated and accelerated, which inevitably leads to uh, a little less transparency, a little less of a of a dispassionate sort of thorough look at an issue. These issues are not related to each other. And, you know, very briefly, take a look at what's not on this agenda. You know, there's nothing on this special session about housing affordability, about property insurance uh, and the crisis that's looming with that. The teacher shortage in Florida. These are all manufactured issues to serve uh, Ron DeSantis's political agenda.
1: And and Steve, one of the main things that the Republican supermajorities are voting on is a bill. That would bring some major changes and updates to how the Desantis administration can transport migrants um, along the lines of what we saw last year with the flights to Martha's Vineyard from Texas. Can Can you share a little bit about what's in that bill and you know what are the ramifications of that? Uh,
5: there's twelve million dollars, I think, in, in an appropriation you could hire an awful lot of teachers for twelve million dollars, and that that's money he's he, he's going to be able to legally use to move migrants around from any place to any place. There were many questions you may recall that what he did last year in uh, Texas, going to San Antonio and, and flying the migrants up to Martha's Vineyard was a direct violation of specific language in the state appropriations bill. That's serious stuff, But but nothing happened. There were no real consequences. At the same time, there's an active pending lawsuit against Governor Ron DeSantis by Democratic Senator Jason Pizzo of South Florida. And you know, one of the things that should never be done under any circumstances is for the legislature to, in effect, short circuit the courts is what's what's happening here. Short circuiting the courts by going in and basically changing the law to, to somehow retroactively fit a political agenda.
1: And to, to your point, and for our listeners' sake, I, I will say the, the the staff analysis behind this bill, which is supposed to be nonpartisan, you know, staff working in the in the Capitol, um, they did say the effect of of this bill would be that, and I'm quoting here: all payments made pursuant to that section, talking about the the past law, are deemed approved. So this would, in some ways, retroactively legalize things that might not have been legal in the first place, right?
5: Right. Um. The Florida legislature has a long history, as do many states, of being uh, pressured by special interest groups to pass laws that in effect, uh, you know, break an unfavorable court verdict on a private business, those kinds of things. That's the political process. It's up to anybody can file a bill on anything, and that's that's democracy. But it's up to people in the system to break that down, prevent that from happening and so forth. Uh, This to go back to the very beginning, you know, um, this in the minds of a lot of people, including most of the Democrats in the Florida legislature, using state of Florida taxpayer dollars to transport migrants from Texas to any place, that is not an appropriate use of Florida tax dollars, period.
1: And, and you know, one other part of the bill is that it would um, part of the lawsuit, a big part of the lawsuit is that the previous law was that migrants could only be transported from Florida, and now it looks to, like it's going to be changed from to, to from Florida to within the United States, which would, you know, broaden the scope of, of these operations for the DeSantis administration. Is that right? Correct.
5: Yes, correct. You know, and obviously everyone knows Ron DeSantis has been highly critical of the Biden administration's immigration policies. He's got every right. Uh, to criticize, I don't want any listeners to be uh, mis- uh, misunderstand what I'm saying. Uh, everything Joe Biden does or doesn't do, or Congress on immigration, is absolute fair game. It's a national crisis. We all know that. The question is, using state resources uh, to, in effect, you know, become become an interloper in other states uh, to do this uh, is is not the right use of Florida taxpayer dollars at all. And it shouldn't be done. And the legislature, we haven't talked about this in this segment yet, but the legislature hasn't been standing up to Ron DeSantis. It is the legislature's constitutional responsibility to serve as a check and balance on the executive branch and to, even when they're of the same party, especially when they're of the same party, to say, no, we're not going to let you do that. And that's not happening.
0: It's 305-995-1800. Or tweet us at Florida Roundup. Let's speak to a former lawmaker. uh, Senator Brandis. let's bring you in. You know, back when the Martha's Vineyard flights happened, you publicly questioned their legality since they were being picked up in Texas and not here in Florida. This new bill would basically make those flights and payments retroactively legal. Wondering, as a former lawmaker, your initial reaction to that?
6: Well, I mean, I think this is clearly an admission that what they did broke the law um, and was not in compliance with what the law was. Um, I think there was serious concerns about their standing in court and where and how this was going to play out. I think there still is. While they approve the payment, um, you know, that doesn't mean that the payment wasn't illegal at the time. Uh, and so I think you're going to see the, the lawsuit continue. I think uh, the conversation is going to continue. And, and frankly, everybody kind of understands what's going on here. It's, this is just covering our tracks.
0: Uh, what's your reaction to Steve saying that, in, in his view anyway, uh, the, the legislature needs to stand up to the governor on some of these
6: matters? Well, it's not going to do that. Understand, you know, with DeSantis planning to announce his presidential run, the legislature is essentially on, you know, on board for the ride. And what this special session really is, is is them kind of covering, you know, covering the tracks overall on a variety of different pieces of legislation, not just immigrants, but also th- their problem with when they had the state attorney, uh, the statewide uh, attorney go out and file all of these these cases against these individuals who were charged with uh, voter fraud. Uh, and then the judges came back and said, listen, the statewide prosecutor doesn't have that power so one of the things they did during this special session is try to give the the statewide prosecutor that power. Uh, you know, and dealing with Reedy Creek and and the the issue at Disney. So there's a lot in this special session. But I agree with Steve that it didn't have to happen during a special session. But you understand that if you're running for president of the United States and you can capture the the the, the national media attention for a week by hosting a special session on a variety of different topics, uh, then you you, you know you're gonna do that. And so this is why they're in special session this week. Really no other reason mm-hmm. uh, than, to, than to continue to, to raise the profile of the governor.
0: Let's talk about Disney for a bit. They will be looking to remove what you uh, correctly for, referred to as Reedy Creek. In other words, Disney's independent special district status, which it has long enjoyed in Florida. What, where do you stand on that?
6: Well, I mean, look, I think for the most part, what they've done is just kind of moved the deck chairs. Uh, Yes, they've taken away the Disney's, they've renamed it, and they've said, okay, you can keep all of your tax status, uh, and we're just going to change the board. Uh, And the governor gets to approve who's on the board. Uh, So it's unlikely for Disney that they're going to see any substantial changes anytime soon. uh, But it does give the governor something to talk about, right? I did this to Disney. Well, he did, he kind of did, you know, did something by changing the board name, but ultimately the effect is nothing really changes for them. What I fully expect to happen is for litigation to ensue. Uh, that simply drags this out beyond the governor's term, uh, and then in a couple of years, hidden in some piece of legislation, things will go back to normal, um, or largely back to normal. So I mean, I think this is this is largely again understand. This is his opportunity to speak on a national stage uh, about this issue uh, that wasn't an issue and to to uh you know to put to put disney quote in its place uh but i think at the end of the day what you're going to find out is we're really trampling on free speech here uh we're trampling on citizens united and other docu- you know other court opinions that say that corporations have the right to speech uh and i think you're going to find that, that in a few years uh this is a lot of much to do about nothing
1: you can call us at 305-995-1800. Again, that's 305-995-1800. And you can tweet us at the Florida Roundup. I want to go to a call now. We have Tom calling from Pembroke Pines. Tom, thanks for calling. You're on.
7: Yeah, hi. I uh, wonder if the, the lawmaker you just talked to uh, has really looked into the Reedy Creek issue because I think it's going to be a little bit more than rearranging the nectar. Uh, I have a very good friend who used to work in management at Disney, and he said, for one, uh, the rumors about it possibly costing Orange County taxpayers more money, uh, is, is uh, in his opinion, was likely. And also, uh, he said, nobody. why would they screw around with, with Disney? Disney was doing a better job than anybody else would do with what they were doing and they've been doing it for 50 years so why would you screw around with them? It's petty. Rhonda DeSantis is acting like a petty child because they support their employees position, uh, the gay employees position, and and they stand by all their employees. They're, they they take care of their employees very well.
1: Thank, thank you for for calling Tom um, and you know, I want to mention we are going to continue talking about Disney and, and whatnot, but go- going back to to Steve with the, the Sun Sentinel, I, I want to, Steve, I, w- I want to ask you a, a question just about how the legislature functions or has increasingly been functioning. Um, I know you've covered Tallahassee for a long time. Um, I mean, has the tenor of the legislature changed when it comes to things like checks and balances? I mean, um, Senator Brandis was just was just talking a little bit about it, that they're not going to do it. Um, I mean, is, is it really just roll over for almost everything at this point? Yeah, it's it's changed dramatically and it's changed
5: dramatically really since Ron DeSantis arrived on the scene. Uh, there's always been some level of deference uh, given to the governor. Uh, but we what we have here is really frightening, I think, because what you have uh, occurring at the same time When DeSantis is exercising an unprecedented expansion of power by the executive, you have a legislative branch that refuses to stand up to him or challenge him or question him. And of course, because of the governor's right to put who he wants on the courts, the judicial branch is no longer really an effective counterweight to what the executive branch is doing. Jeff Brandis may be too modest to say it himself, but and I've written about it on, on numerous occasions, but Jeff Brandis, who was a Republican Senator from St. Petersburg was one of the last, uh, people who thoughtfully and, uh, you know, intelligently questioned things that the administration was doing. He would question what the legislative leadership was doing in the Senate, which is no longer uh, looked upon. Uh, it's always been looked, looked upon with some reluctance, but he lost a chairmanship over that. It's, um, the 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 freedom of thought um, and expression no longer exists. One last quick point about this: I'm not going back very far. I'm going back to Rick Scott, the previous governor. Rick Scott did some things, wanted to do some things, the legislature didn't agree with, and they told him in so many words, you know, forget it. Uh, the legislature tried to abolish Enterprise Florida. It didn't. It failed, but at least they challenged Scott and had a debate. Rick Scott wanted to privatize most of the prisons in this state. The Florida Senate fellow republicans said absolutely not you know regardless of your position on that issue that that was the right approach that's what the legislature should be doing
4: and
0: let's go to kathy in sarasota she's been holding go ahead kathy yeah all right kathy you're on the air all right let's uh yeah go ahead
4: yeah no No, what I have to say is I just heard all your DeSantis bashers, and I did agree with the guy about Biden. He can't handle a balloon, much less the southern border. So let me say something very clearly here. What I have to tell you is DeSantis, if he is using taxpayers' money, like the state money, to send these migrants, it may cost us less in the future because maybe some of these Democratic states will wake up and talk to Biden and help him come to his senses and do something right on the border. Maybe it'll be pressure on uh, New York and some of these states that keep complaining when they just send them a couple of, uh, of migrants, you know? I'm All tired right. of it. All right.
0: Thanks, Kathy. Senator a uh, former Republican state senator, uh, Governor DeSantis uh, has won plaudits from Republican voters for the migrants' uh, flight and for his positions on this issue. What are your thoughts,
6: well, I mean, look, we have a migrant problem in the South, you know, in South Florida right now, uh, and we've had one for years. There, the the fact that you couldn't find people in in the state uh, in order to ship out uh, is just kind of almost kind of comical on its face. Uh, at the end of the day, there's no reason for us to spend taxpayer dollars in Florida and Arizona to move 100 people or 150 people when their the problem is tens of thousands of people, um, and, and so ultimately. I think what this really is just doing is covering covering the past sins of of the decision to fly people out from Texas, where they knew they didn't have the authority to do it, but they did it anyways. And they're coming back and they're rewriting the law uh, to try to fit their narrative. At the end of the day, that's not how the system's supposed to work. The legislature is not supposed to allow that. But in this case, they're co-conspirators to to do it. But they know that. This is not a surprise to anybody. The legislature knows exactly what it's doing. The governor knows exactly what he's doing um, in order to to kind of fend off the the litigation that he's facing. Uh, Because even if you believe that the flight from Florida to Texas was, I mean, from Florida to Martha's Vineyard uh, was okay, those individuals came from Texas. That plane did a touch and go here essentially in Florida uh, in order to access those funds but then then the question is, well, who paid for the flight from Texas to Florida? So ultimately, this, this all doesn't this is all about kind of um, covering your tracks uh, in order to, to kind of rewrite the law in, in retrospect.
1: And we're going to be right back on the Florida Roundup. Please stick around.
0: Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. Thanks for being with us. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville.
1: And I'm Danny Rivero in Miami. And we're continuing our conversation with Senator Brandis and Sun-Sentinel opinion editor and columnist Steve Bosquet. And we're also continuing receiving, we're still receiving calls and and tweets and whatnot. You can call us at 305-995-1800. That's 305-995-1800. And, um, I want to go to Brian calling from Tallahassee. Brian, thank you for calling the Florida Roundup. You're on. Hi, thank you.
8: Um, first, I'd just like to say that uh, it was very nice of, of uh, Brandeis to uh, say the legislature is covering their tracks. That's a nice, uh, polite euphemism for what they're actually covering. Um, the reason I called, though, is and uh, I apologize if either of y'all have, have covered this. I haven't seen it in Tallahassee. I haven't seeing all the coverage. Um, but we keep hearing about uh, DeSantis requesting more money to uh, send immigrants, migrants out of the state. And we all know that it was something like $1.5 million that he spent last year to move 50 people uh, at a cost of $30,000 each uh, from Texas to Martha's Vineyard. Uh, he was uh, given something like ten or twelve million last year, what happened to the rest of that money? And another thing is, has anyone done a study of how much it's costing the taxpayers of Florida to uh, appeal all of the uh, judicial decisions that have gone against the status? Th- thank, thank
1: you, thank you, thank you, Brian, um, it, Senator Brandis. I'll, I'll, I'll ask. I mean, ask I think you, you have to.
6: Yeah, you have to understand with with uh, with Governor DeSantis running for president of the United States, if you hold all these decisions up to that light, everything he's doing makes sense. Right. He's got to win a Republican primary. And in order to get a Republican win a Republican primary, he's got to win amongst Republican voters. What are the issues that Republican voters care about? Immigration. Well, if you don't, if you can't find or don't want to admit that you have an immigration problem in Florida, then you got to go to another state. Uh, and so it makes a ton of sense for him to fly people from Texas to Martha's Vineyard. Why? Because he's flying them not from his state where he has to admit there's a problem, but, and he's flying them to Martha's Vineyard, which is going to get, gather massive amounts of press attention, especially on right leaning press. So it makes a ton of sense. Why hold a special session? Because it makes a ton of sense. Why go after felons who, uh, you know, unwittingly voted um, Ill- illegally? Because it makes a ton of sense. It's a national media story.
1: And and, and so S- Sen- Senator, he, t- sorry to cut you off, but um yeah. to, to the caller's question, and I know obviously you're not in the legislature now, but I mean... What happens as, to the money? Yeah, what happened to the money? Oh, it just stays in an account. Okay. I mean, it's just sitting in an account waiting for the
6: legislature to change the law so that then now he can start doing these flights again. Uh, again, every time he does a flight, it's going to make national media attention and it's going to get him exactly what his, he and his team want, which is the, the national media attention on the right media so that he can win the Republican primary.
1: Thank you. And we're gonna actually have to leave it there for for both of our guests here. We're, we've been talking with Steve Bosquet of the South Florida Sun Sentinel and former Republican State Senator Jeff Brandes. Steve, Senator Brandis, thank you both so much for coming on. My thank point. you. Thanks. Thanks.
0: Well, FEMA continues to help Floridians rebuild from Hurricanes Nicole and Ian. The agency says it has approved more than seventy six hundred households in the state to receive group flood insurance policies for the next three years. And listen up, a deadline to apply for FEMA assistance is coming up very soon. Kimberly Fuller is with the Office of External Affairs at FEMA and joins us now. Uh good to be with you, Kimberly.
9: Hi, nice to see you. Nice to see you. Nice to hear you. Yeah, Mitra. nice to
0: hear you. Uh, so, what is the deadline to submit an application here in Florida for FEMA assistance? People needing disaster relief after Hurricane Nicole.
9: Well, the deadline for Hurricane Nicole is on Monday, the thirteenth of February, and there are several ways that you can apply. Um, But I just want to make one reminder we are still working cases for hurricane ian as Mm -hmm. well so if you're having trouble with your application still from um, ian you can go into any of our disaster recovery centers or call the numbers that i'm about to give you later um, if you're still having trouble with uh,
0: ian how many folks in florida would you say are still dealing with that
9: well we have people that we haven't been able to
0: reach and so
9: that's why we're really grateful to be on your program today so that if you have not heard from FEMA in a while, please give us a call, go by a disaster recovery center, or visit, um, you can do it. this is in the privacy of your own home, you can go to the FEMA app or disasterassistance.gov and um, check on the status. And the easiest thing is to really go face-to-face in person with one of the mm-hmm. recovery experts in the DRC because they can sometimes just being face-to-face We kind of pick up on things that we might not have noticed in a telephone call.
0: Now, whether it's Nicole or Ian, who is eligible for assistance?
9: Well, we like everybody to go ahead and apply and not, um, you know, remove yourself from qualification. Even if you have insurance, you can still apply for FEMA because sometimes we can give uh, assistance and for things that maybe insurance does not provide. And we also have the Small Business Administration loans, which are actually available to homeowners and renters. It's not just for businesses. And a lot of people will get that application either in the mail or notice to complete it. And they go, "Well, I'm not a business. You know, I'm not going to fill that out." Well, please don't, um, you know, stop the process. You have to continue the process by filling out that application. And as a homeowner or a renter, we can provide. Um, a loan right now it's zero interest for the rest of the year and it can do um take care of your personal property and actually pay your deductible so Mm -hmm. uh, the minimum amount i believe is one thousand dollars and the sba.gov website explains a lot of that um but i know a lot of people haven't even processed their insurance claim because they're afraid that they're not going to be able to pay that deductible but the sba loan can take care of that
0: you're listening to the florida roundup from florida public radio It's 305-995-1800 to connect with FEMA. Maybe you're someone out there who needs help. So what are all of the kinds of assistance FEMA offers, people who've dealt with a disaster?
9: We can take care of um, the basic things such as repair, which is what you would assume. Um, But we also take care of hotels, temporary sheltering. Um, Let's say your home is not gonna be inhabitable, um forever or maybe for another couple of years for for whatever reason uh, we can take care of temporary sheltering and we're now um really going full-fledged with a program that's called um it's really we're looking for like apartment buildings so that we can put a number of people in one location and have the uh the landlords Um, maybe fix up the property that hasn't been used in a while and we'll provide the funds to be able to repair it as long as you let us do a direct lease program with some disaster survivors for the next 18 months. Um, But then also, you know, one of the um, biggest things going on right now is people might be staying in their home and the home is not habitable there might be mold because of um you know it's been sometimes since the flood sometimes the mold doesn't appear when our inspectors have gone through so if there is something like that going on in your home please give us a call because you might be eligible for the hotel program and we're noticing about half the people that are eligible for the program aren't utilizing it and we think that maybe it's because they just want to stay near their home but you know give us a call let us see if we can provide that service for you and it's only available for three more months so we don't want it to run out before they've given us a call
0: now you say Kimberly the best thing to do is to go to a FEMA office but people can call in lieu of that can you uh, do us this favor give the number out And then also tell people how they can find the nearest pop-up location to visit with FEMA in person.
9: Okay. So the easiest way, of course, is just to call 800-621-3363, and that's um, 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. And then disasterassistance.gov, you can set up an account where we will send you messages on the process, On the status of your application but that's where you can also just put in your address and it will show you the closest disaster recovery center and those are open um every day except for sunday so monday through saturday from 9 a.m to 6 p.m
1: and kimberly i want to ask you a question you mentioned i I believe you said it's about half the people that are eligible for this assistance have not um registered i mean do do we have an idea of like are there counties or places where there's more people that are not registering who are eligible in fact?
9: Well, uh, where I noticed the numbers are the highest are actually the counties that are closest to Orlando and you know, we're not sure why, but it could be people might be staying with relatives. Um, so, but then they also just might be staying in our house and that are in their house. And that's why we kind of want to get the word out to just say, if you're staying in your house, don't have running water, or utilities, you know, let's take advantage of the hotel program and and use it for the next three months if if you can.
0: If people and- miss the deadline, what do they do then, Kimberly? If they miss next week's deadline?
9: Well, well, we we don't want them to miss the deadline. So uh, let's at least get your name in the queue. You will get an applicant number. If you have to upload documents, if you have to update update your case. You're welcome to do that beyond Monday, but let's just get the application in by Monday. And then um, our DRCs and the 800 number will still be open beyond uh, Monday to be able to help you more on your case. But let's not wait till the last minute to apply.
0: So again, disasterassistance.gov and the number again, if you could?
9: The the helpline number, FEMA helpline number is
0: 800-621-3363. There it is, folks. If you need assistance from Hurricanes Ian and Nicole, get in touch with FEMA now. Don't wait. The deadline is imminent. Kimberly Fuller with the Office of External Affairs at the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Such a strong presence in Florida. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. And thanks to everyone who listened. And thanks to Danny Rivero, now on the show full time. Uh, That's our show, the Florida Roundup, produced by WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville and WLRN Public Media in Miami. Heather Schatz, Bridget O'Brien, and Brendan Rivers are show producers.
1: WLRN's vice president of radio and our technical director is Peter Mayers. Engineering help from Doug Peterson, Charles Michaels, and Brady Corum. Richard Ives answers the phones. And our theme music is provided by the Miami jazz guitarist Aaron Libos at AaronLibos.com. I'm Danny Rivero.
0: And I'm Melissa Ross. Thanks for calling, tweeting, and listening. Have a great weekend.